Crimes without criminals, an invisible gang at work, who are we gonna call? Unfortunately, the police are the only ones available to combat what some are already dubbing the silent crime wave. But perhaps the most disturbing silence is that coming from City Hall. April O'Neil, Channel 3 Eyewitness News. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen. It's a show where we talk about movies and specifically we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host Travis, aka TV's Travis, and this is episode number 157. Our movie this week is 1990's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie. And joining me to talk about it, I have two guests. The first one, my co-host on Let's Watch Highlander, Audie Norman. Audie, how are you? Doing good. It was weird watching something without Duncan in it for a change, but... Is, yeah, and for us to talk about I'll that, too. Um, that'll be, you know, I think we'll make it. I think we'll do all right. Yeah. <laughs> there were still swords involved, so... Right, exactly. It's Highlander adjacent. And also joining us this week, because they had never seen this movie before, is Ace. And it's a name that you have heard me say many times in our chat room. Uh, Ace, how are you? I'm doing well. Excellent. So you had not seen this movie before. Not that I can remember, but I I do want to mention to the audience, as I've mentioned to Travis before, this movie came out on March 30th, 1990. So it's getting close to 30-something years. I was six and a half months from turning seven when this movie came out, and I still never seen it. Yeah, and and it's funny because you've probably you would have been the age to have been watching the cartoon at the time. I definitely was. Um, Absolutely, mm-hmm. that's my only frame of reference for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I've never read the comics. In fact, Audie, I, I would love to get your opinion on where to start with that. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about it, but good gosh, this movie. I was 10 years old at the time. I saw it in the theaters when it came out and I was blown mm-hmm. away by it. Yeah. But there's so much about it that I think people expected it to be more about the cartoons and it was like more about the comics a lot more. So, really? so yeah, yeah. So, okay. I'm going to give a little, uh, quick kind of teenage mutant Ninja turtles history. Um, and to kind of set up what this movie was and when it, when it came out and all of that. So, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles started as a comic in 1984, I believe it was. Um, yeah. And it was a self-published comic by uh, by Eastman and Laird. And a few years later, three years later, was the cartoon. Now, the cartoon began solely as a commercial for selling the action figures. Um, Which I uh, had a lot of. And that's all cartoons in the 80s did. It was, but this was even more so. Like, they did a miniseries. Uh, I think it was like a four or five episode arc, and that was supposed, that was originally supposed to be all they did. But it was oh, wow. wildly popular, so they kept the cartoon going. And I can remember watching, I mean, that was my, that was Saturday morning appointment viewing. I was watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It had the greatest, one of the greatest theme songs ever. Um, mm-hmm. Those figures, I had a ton of the figures, all the crazy characters. Like, it was wildly popular. Much, much more popular than the comic had ever been. And the comic was silly popular. Like, the the first yeah. run that um, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird did, they self-published, and it sold out. 
completely sold out and they had to actually do a second printing and then continue on. Um, and so this movie is a few years after the cartoon and the, you know, the conventional wisdom would be capitalized on the success of the cartoon. And that's the thing that more people know. And it's aimed more at kids. The comic was a little, was, was a darker, grittier version. It was a little more adult oriented. And when it started out. Yeah. yeah. So, but when, uh, when the studio, which was golden harvest was the studio that made this, which is outside of the Hollywood system. They were actually, um, they are, uh, a Hong Kong cinema, you know, martial arts films. That's why they were approached by producers, um, to fund the movie. And they brought in, uh, Steve Barron was the director that they brought in. He was known for music videos. He read the comics from what I understand and really liked that. And so that was the direction he wanted to go in was much more comic oriented. What we ended up with was a film that is very much an adaptation of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic book, but they did bring Mm -hmm. in elements from the cartoon. So one element from the cartoon is the uh, there's a lot more humor and there's a lot the uh, the multicolored bandanas that was not part of the comic. Originally, they all wore red. Um, The cartoon. Yeah, the cartoon and the the action figures the toys brought in the different colors to differentiate them so it'd be easier to sell and be easier to tell them apart Mm -hmm. oh wow okay i learned something new tonight um actually the comic started out black and white it was a a while before they even got coloring yeah you know you'd see the red bandanas on the covers but that was about it yeah that was that was the only time you saw it was the covers um a few other cartoon elements uh april o'neill in the movie is a news reporter which was the same as the show in the original comic. She was like a lab assistant. Um, yeah. She started out as a lab assistant to Baxter Stockman for yep. you Ninja Turtle nerds out there. Mm-hmm. But then they eventually, you know, a lot of things in the comic eventually transitioned to what was happening in the cartoon just oh, to sure. bring it all together. I mean, obviously you're going to, that makes sense, right? That's m- super, super popular. And then this movie mm-hmm. also came out at like the height of the popularity. It was, the comic was 84. The cartoon started in 87. This was 1990. So you're three years into the cartoon. Things hadn't waned yet. And it was, turtles were everywhere. I mean, everywhere. You could yeah. get Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles plastered onto any item you could possibly think of. You mm-hmm. could get. Um, do either of you remember the uh, Hostess Pies? The Teenage Mutant Ninja yeah. Turtles Pies? Yes, yeah, did. never got I them, but I definitely remember those. What was that? The green filling. I, oh, I remember the, the green filling. I yep. remember that. And it was, I remember wanting them all the time because of the green filling, and it would turn your tongue green. Yep. <laughs> it was it was green dyed vanilla pudding, but because it was yeah. green, we loved it. Um, mm-hmm. There was there, but I mean, just literally like anything and everything you could think of, you could get uh, on them. Now, the movie was at the time the most profitable or most successful uh, independent film. Uh, and it actually yeah. held, I think it was profitable, uh, if I remember correctly, because mm-hmm. it made like a hundred and hundred something million in a U.S. box office and close to... Million in domestic and 66 million in the foreign box office. Yeah, on something like a $15 million budget. And it held that title till a few years, about nine years later when Blair Witch took it. Uh, because yep. Blair Witch was made for a few pennies and a six pack of beer and that made like $200 million. <laughs> but 
what's amazing is number one, this movie was made for fifteen million dollars, which is impressive when you start to dive into the animatronic work that they did for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but having Golden Harvest be the producer's help. Now, their original budget, I want to say, was like $3 million. And when the producers uh, who wanted to bring in um, Jim Henson's Creature Shop to do the Turtles, they immediately knew, well, $3 million is not even going to cover what Jim Henson, what, what the effects are going to take, let alone the rest yeah. of the movie. Um, but that was a smart move because nobody That was did... the smartest move they made on this movie. 100% because nobody did puppets, puppeteering or anything the way that Henson's you know, group could do. And what helped with that was uh, Steve Barron had directed an episode of the story, the pilot episode mm-hmm. of the storyteller. So Henson kind of did this as a favor to him too. Yeah. Yeah, because Henson's Connections help. Yeah. It's not always what you know, but who you know. <laughs> um, and Henson wasn't super keen on the... Uh, level of violence in the movie and that was that's a theme we're going to get into uh with just sort of reactions to it in general mm-hmm. but he did agree to do it um and it, the the just just that part alone makes this movie work um yeah the amount of work they put into the faces and uh and the suits and the the idea to have cuz i guess an an early concept was to do it very uh who frame Roger Rabbit style and have 2D animation mixed with live action. Not just that, but the the original original idea was basically just to have them in green body paint. Now that would have been have terrible. Them. Yeah, that's that's but some that Roger Corman the, level. Yeah, that was the original original idea was to have them just. I, I think like Billy Crystal, Robin Williams. There there were a bunch of actors, comedic actors mm. specifically. And they were just going to have them in street clothes and their bot, like their arms and their legs and their faces painted green and just do it that way. Then it evolved to the Who Framed Roger Rabbit style and then became this. Now, the Who Framed Roger Rabbit idea, if they had the ability to make it look at least that good, could work. But I still wouldn't have yeah. liked it as much and it wouldn't have lasted. I don't think this particular property would have lasted as long uh, and felt as timeless as something like Who Framed Roger Rabbit because that was already a period piece. Yeah. Um, and so it's very stylized. But this was this movie wants to try and feel like it takes place in a world like ours. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, and, you know, obviously we've seen the uh, Michael Bay produced uh, Turtles movies that came out in 2014 and 16 where they went a full CG mm-hmm. for the Turtles. I didn't I didn't hate those movies, but I don't think they hold up the same way because there's a bit of a disconnect between your actors and your full CG characters. I also think yeah. that the design they made, they made the Turtles too big in those movies. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like that's one of the things that works with this is they got shorter actors to play them. And so they all they they scale they look better to me. They do. They do. Um, I so the the turtle heads were were animatronic, and then all the batteries and and everything were in the shells, uh, which I thought was mm-hmm. pretty cool. And they were wireless, or they could run them wired. I did. <laughs> I've read over time the so they shot the movie in North Carolina, uh, mm-hmm. even though it's set in New York. It was cheaper to shoot there, and. Mm-hmm. 
they were in Dino De Laurentiis's old studios in North Carolina. Um, Carol Co. had just bought them. So they were able to use that. But it was apparently near either an airport or an Air Force base. And occasionally planes would fly over low enough that it would mess with the wireless signals. And I, I wish... Trivia up for that right now. Actually, it says that uh, it was shot near nearby airport, and this would present problems with the. That's why the facial expressions were so weird. They could get weird, but I guess there were times, and I wish we could see like behind the scenes footage of it, where the faces would just start to tweak out and freak out because and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I mean nightmare fuel, but I still want to see it. Um, yeah, for absolutely. sure. In but yeah, I mean, oh sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I found the names of the actors that were... It was Gallagher, Sam Kinison, Bobcat Goldwith, or Goldthwaite, and mm-hmm. Billy Crystal. Ugh. And the idea was to have them dressed in turtle shells and just have their arms and legs painted green. And then they were going to do a rated R version and include a scene with partially nude nuns on roller skates fighting the heroes. None of this sounds good at all. No. Yeah. Not, none of that. Yeah. No. No. That's not the turtles I know. <laughs> not, not at all, and not even close uh, to you know either the cartoon or the comic book. So I'm really glad that never happened. Um, no, so like the turtle, the turtle work, so they had, and then they had um, easier suits for the stunt performers to do when they had like be, uh, more elaborate stunts. They were a lighter weight suit without the... And if you notice, I mean, when you watch the movie, you can kind of tell when they're wearing the stunt suits because the head will just have uh, a static um, facial expression. It won't change. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and then you just hear like but still, audio like, overdub. But even, yeah, even still, it looks great. Watching this movie and seeing the stunt performers do what they do in those suits, that's impressive. Mm-hmm. I know it kicked their butts. Like, they talked about sweating, you know, pounds and pounds off their bodies, but still yeah. impressive the way it ended up. Yeah, and, and uh, even one... almost thirty years. Sorry, but I was gonna say just to follow up with that that thought was even thirty years later. I can say because I watched it literally today. There, well, I I watched it a couple of times beforehand, but I, I watched it again today, and even almost thirty years later, this movie still absolutely holds up. Hmm. It really, really does, and it's because they had. They had characters on set that the actors could work with, and and the look that they were going for uh, worked. One of the things is so th- this was part of a trilogy of movies. They made three in this sort of timeline, um, and one thing that makes this movie set apart from Teenage uh, Turtles Two: The Secret of the Ooze and then Turtles in Time is Steve Barron and his director of photography in this shot it in such a way that it was the colors were a little more muted and everything was dark, but it was high contrast and it looks mm-hmm. like a film. It looks mm-hmm. like a movie. If you go back and watch two or three again, the thing that I notice when I watch them now is they look like a TV show. They're shot like yeah. a TV show. And yeah. that makes a huge difference. Even if you aren't perceiving that difference in the movie, it makes you look at it in a, in a different way. And so, um, you know, that's kind of just one of those things. It's like, there's a lot of very subtle things that I noticed, uh, on this watch, um, that maybe I never really paid attention to before that just make it feel 
better. There's attention to detail on things like the the scene where April is um, interviewing Chief Stearns. What I love about that is when the camera's on Chief Stearns, you see him. He's got a little shine on his forehead. He's a little ner- He's a little bit nervous. He's a little bit sweaty. Um, Mm -hmm. like you would be on TV and like you would be if he's being grilled by this reporter. But it's the kind of thing as a kid, I didn't notice that. I didn't care about that at all. I just liked that he was loud and he yelled at her. Like I thought that was funny. But I'm watching it now and I'm like, okay, no, this is a nice little moment. Or the next morning when Charles and Danny show up after the turtles are hiding, Charles shows up. He's in the same clothes he had on the day before when he was at her apartment in the morning. He's a little bit unshaven. His tie's undone. Like, he's disheveled because he spent the whole night worried about his kid and bailing his kid out of jail. Mm-hmm. It's a small thing that, again, younger viewer, I didn't care about that at all. But I see it now, and I'm like, that's a nice touch. It's just a small thing that just adds adds a little bit to a scene. And they didn't do stuff like that in the sequels. So that's another reason why I think this holds up more because it just feels more like a film and it feels more kind of real. Yeah. There's a lot of that stuff that for me, it was like, I understand it now as a kid, I didn't understand it at all, but they put so many things in this movie that make sense for an adult to say, like when April's in the, the uh, turtle den, She's like, why don't I ever dream about Harrison Ford? I love that. As a kid, I didn't know who Harrison Ford was. It's 10 years old. (laughs) I was like, okay. Later on, when her and Casey Jones have a fight, and they're like, it's kind of like moonlighting, isn't it? I was like, moonlighting? What is that a show my mom watches? What does that have to do with anything? (laughs) But now I get it, and I think it's hilarious. So, like, stuff like that. Like, I think that's the other impressive part about this film is that it's one of those things where it it's supposed to cater to kids, but they put that stuff in that is realistic enough that the adults don't feel like they're watching just a kiddie movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. You got, you got the awesome fight scenes for the kids and then you got the subtle little jokes for the adults. It, it, mm. It's a perfect blend. And it also feels like a film because Steve Barron literally filmed this on super eight film. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he, so Steve Barron, uh, his probably his most, ever watched thing is the music video for aha's take on me um might be the thing he is like that most people have seen that has steve Barron's name attached to it unfortunately he did not get to finish this movie in the edits um he had walked off by that point or been fired depending on who you talk to um Mm. because because he was so focused on this more comic accurate version this darker tone and golden harvest was worried and the thing about that is I understand the worry at the time because they were taking a kid's cartoon and trying to make it into a live action film. And this is 1990. They're producing it. You know, they're, they're working on this in 1989. It was only two years earlier that He-Man and the Masters of the Universe bombed hard core. So that was the reason why, even though Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the cartoon was one of the most popular things on TV at the time no studio in Hollywood wanted to do it because of yeah. that. They were worried about it. Um, yeah. I read that and I'm like, what? You know, on one hand, I didn't understand it. Cause I'm thinking you've got a hot commodity here, not only in the comics, but the TV, the cartoon that's not even three years old, two years old. Cause the pilot aired in 1987 mm-hmm. The show actually started in December, 1988. So you've got a show that's not even two years old. 
Yeah. And you didn't make a movie based off of hot comics by Image Comics, wonderful company, and a hot t- and a hot kids cartoon every every weekday. And I, on the one hand, I sat there like, what are you talking? Are, are you guys? And then on the other hand, you know, now that I'm an adult, I can understand, you know, money and everything. I'm like, oh, well, yeah, that, you know, when Masters of the Universe tanks, you're going to get a little tight with your money. Just a little. Yeah. yeah, you're gonna you're also gonna be this a was more worried. this was a time that's much different from now when pop culture was not the nerd culture as much as it is now, yeah. and so culture. like stuff like this taking like they were taking a chance on this movie and they brought in a guy like Steve Barron who I don't think they realized what they had and he did mm-hmm. yeah and he took it and ran with it the way he wanted to and I think they were nervous because again. These are people who wanted to make money and didn't realize what they had on their hands. Yeah, you you can just tell it had a uh, just to, to to bring back the budget. It had a budget of thirteen point five million dollars, made two hundred two million dollars. Yeah, mm-hmm. it made them so, a ton of money. <laughs> yeah, yep. And then each movie after that, I believe, also just continued the success. I mean, I, I can remember the second and third movie definitely. I I loved the entire franchise. I dressed up as my Colangelo for Halloween. Was a but either way, I mean that that shows you the like Travis said the popularity of these movies, the cartoon, the comics, and everything else. And that's why I said, you know, I'm sitting here thinking the the Disney was one of the names mentioned as a, a studio to produce this and and distribute it and everything else. And I'm sitting there thinking, you guys would have had box office gold. But then. I, I sit there as an adult and think, well, yeah, okay, Masters of the Universe kind of sucked. I think Mario Brothers is two years out or so. That kind of sucked. Yeah. So it makes sense that in that late '80s, early '90s time period, that maybe don't make stuff out of out of nerd culture. Stick to your Rambo's and your and your McLeans and everything else. <laughs> yeah, and it honestly, what makes this movie work is Steve Barron understood what he was trying to make and he understood the property and yeah. and to make it an earnest movie he wasn't because the comic the comic started because it was a parody the the teenage mutant ninja turtles mm-hmm. comic was a parody of the dark and gritty comics of the time frank miller's run on um daredevil or the dark knight returns like all that kind of stuff so that was There's- eastman and laird were, were kind of poking fun at that that's why you have the foot clan was making fun mm-hmm. of the hand from Marvel Comics. Yeah. And they were these dark and, and, and angry turtles, which is so funny to think that then that gets turned into this completely silly children's Saturday morning cartoon where they're talking about pizza and, you know, they live in New York, but the, the you know, one of them's got like a surfer accent thing going on, like all this kind of stuff. It's so silly, but it worked because yeah. it's so absurd and it's so outrageous. And Steve Barron like figured out a way to kind of capture all these different parts of it. There is some, some great deleted scene stuff that I want to talk about because I'm curious, Audie, if you're familiar with how much of this you're familiar with, because I was learning some new stuff um, recently about this movie. Nace, you as well. Um, I love Shredder's introduction in this movie. Uh, Mm -hmm. It is a, I timed it out. It's a minute and 20 second long unbroken shot, Uh, crane shot down and, and all of that. What I liked about it was how it's there's very subtle music going on. It's just focused entirely on Shredder for the entirety of the shot. But there was a deleted scene 
that was part of that that I thought was really cool and I kind of wish we could have seen. And that was yeah. um, that uh, the the thugs that mug April in the beginning of the movie and they're captured, they have to fight Shredder in order to avoid punishment of some kind. So that scene would have gone a little differently where he walks in and then he sits down because uh, I've seen the storyboards for this. Shredder comes in, mm-hmm. sits, and then those four guys basically attack him from four different directions, and he fights them all off flawlessly without ever breaking his gaze from straight ahead of him, that kind of thing, just showing just how much of a badass he is. Yep. And I love that idea, and I liked the way, I guess they put it in the comic adaptation of the movie, but it just doesn't show as well. And from the frames, from the from the comic panels I saw, it didn't look as good. Yeah, that was in the comics. It was in the, I even had the novelization of it back in the day and read that. So it was in that. The one other part of that scene, and I don't know if they actually filmed it or not. This part you can actually find on YouTube of him like sitting on the ground beating up guys. I think it made it into a German edit of the movie. Or 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 at least a German DVD, I think. Or yeah, or, or like special features or something somehow. Yeah. Um, but there was one other thing about that scene after he beats them up he's supposed to be holding the mask for a new uh, foot member. Yes. And they're supposed to come at him and take it. And he slashes their face to do it. Mimicking what we find out happened is his face later. Um, And that was like their mark for getting into the foot clan. And then proceeds to the scene that we see in the movie where he puts it on them. The guy puts his headband on and that kind of thing. But yeah, there, there's a few things like that that were in the script, and so it made it to the novelization adaptation. It made it to the comics adaptation because they had to get that stuff ahead of time to produce those parts of it. Yep. But, but when it got time to edit the movie, those things were cut out. But it's really interesting stuff that didn't make it. There's even one other interesting part of where like the turtles um, at the beginning when they fight off the muggers from April. I can't remember if it was comic or the the novella novelization april actually notices the turtles in the sewers but she doesn't know what she's looking at because it's just their shells upside in the water which mm. you see in a trailer footage was never used in the movie yep it wasn't used um, in this movie but it was used in the next one yes they did they i think they did use that shot or if not they recreated it because i do remember that where like the shells kind of bubble up pop up yeah the they did it in the second movie for sure mm-hmm. and as for the Shredder sitting there beating up the Foot Clan before he fights the Turtles and is introduced. In I don't think that would have worked in the movie, to be honest. Well, I think the shot of him coming in as they had it, coming up against the Turtles, added suspense to the movie and was a badass way to introduce the character. I think if they would have included that scene, it wouldn't have had as much tension against the Turtles as it did. Well, remember, though, that the scene we're talking about would have taken place about uh, a third of the way into the movie, as opposed oh, to... No. Okay, yeah, no, okay, I remember what you're talking about. Okay, yeah, no, that, that okay, at that point, it would have been fine. You're right. Mm-hmm. Because it is interesting that your your main antagonist of Shredder and the Turtles don't even meet until the last 10 minutes of the movie, and the Turtles yeah. basically, they, the Turtles have no idea who he is at all, mm-hmm. which is... It's, it's, Neither did I as someone who just watched it today. I thought Tatsu was the main villain. Ah, I wow. was the and 
and that goes to the credit of the character of Tatsu as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I do like I like that scene. I also like there was so when the turtles after the fight at April's apartment slash uh, um, thrift store, and that all burns down, and they leave and they go to the farm. Um, there was more of the stuff at the farm that was structured a little bit differently. And mm-hmm. I kind of liked when I was reading about it and I understand everything I'm about to talk about that got cut. I completely understand that they were, uh, they wanted to probably cut for pacing and time because this movie is roughly an hour and a half. And for a film aimed at kids to especially in 1990 to think that kids are going to sit through a two or two hour and 10 minute movie is insane. There's no way that's going to happen. And it's not going to get made. Um, so they had to cut these things down for pacing. the bummer of it is like adult me wants to see these things because we get the, the, the scene where April is doing her doodles and her drawings. And then we get, uh, Donatello's scene with Casey Jones and we get Leo Mm -hmm. sitting, waiting on Raph and, and all of that. Well, an earlier version of all of that kind of stuff, Raphael wakes up and they start training right away. Um, but we also get Michelangelo's thing, because if you notice, we never find out what's going on with him. They cut all mm-hmm. that out. His arc in this movie was going to be really interesting because he's the most happy-go-lucky of them. And then he takes yeah. the loss of Splinter super hard. So they had all this stuff where he's like wrecking the barn and he's got a heavy mm-hmm. bag out there. And we see that one shot of him hitting the heavy bag, but that was going to be him just going ham on that thing and taking everything really hard and not being the happy-go-lucky Michelangelo that we know. Yep. And also, um, it also did have where Raphael yelling splinter on top of the barn. If you pay attention, it's actually Michelangelo. And they yeah. dubbed over Raphael's voice. Mm-hmm. So that was yeah. gonna, all going to be him. Which makes the scene then where he comes in to get the turtle wax a much more kind of emotional scene because it's Mikey coming back to himself and he's starting to, you know, make some jokes again, uh, which yeah. is why Casey and April's reactions are kind of what they are. It still works in the context of the movie, but when you think about what they were going to do, it makes it even more like, oh, Mikey's finally coming around, you know, Raphael's awake and, and all this. And there was also some more training stuff where they train blindfolded. And if you pay attention mm-hmm. to the training they're doing in the movie, they use some of those shots. Yeah. That was something that was talked about in the comic and especially the novelization. I remember that, that that was a big deal about them coming together and training blindfolded. Like, I forget who it was. It may have been Michelangelo that started it, but like it was a big deal for them training together with one blindfolded and like, they hit it in the movie when they talk, when Splinter talks to them when they're um, around the fire. Yep. And I think that's a better way of doing it for a movie. Mm-hmm. But in the book, they talked about how much that training really brought them together as well as figuring out, you know, their next step as ninjas, like just how freaking good they are together. Yeah. Yeah. Now, see, for me, coming from the cartoon, I fully expected Leonardo just to step into the splinter role, like mm-hmm. automatically, like mm-hmm. like there was no doubt about. Like in the beginning of the movie, when they're all joking and they're all saying the you know the cowabunga and the awesome, and I didn't expect Donatello and Leonardo 
to engage in that. Because for me, Donatello was always the brainy nerd mm -hmm. that was socially awkward. In fact, I identified more with Donatello than I did Michelangelo growing up. And Leonardo was always the stoic samurai leader, Flinner Jr., yeah. So to watch this, so to watch this movie and see them all basically being Michelangelo light mm -hmm. was a big shock early on. And then I was like, well, you know what? I kind of like this. <laughs> well, also I think. And that. Oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say that's more of coming from the comics mm -hmm. of the turtles being kind of interchangeable. It also comes from just the fact that this is like Ninja Turtles Year One, like. Mm -hmm. Leonardo hasn't figured out that he's supposed to be the leader. Yeah. Splinter's, you know, we haven't gotten to the point where Splinter has seen that and has trained Leonardo to do that. But it's something they point out to, like when him and Raph get into it in April's apartment and Raph storms off. Yeah. There was some of that, you know, yeah. Donatello being what, who he was. I mean, they, they got it in there with him working on the truck with uh, Casey. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's some aspects of the cartoon that you could only do so much in a movie like this. Sure. And again, Steve Barron's trying to keep this more grounded and more gritty, which is how the comics were. Comics eventually got there. Um, like I said, eventually the comics and the cartoon kind of meld. Um, Archie was doing a bunch of the comics and doing like the really silly stuff. Um, but the comics got away from their grittiness and got into more like the cartoon and more of the generalized um, property that they became and became wildly successful and uh, making money for everybody. Yeah. Sure. Um, but I think with, with this movie, it's, I think, like I just said, this is year one of the Ninja Turtles. And so they haven't fallen into those necessarily uh, uh, characteristics other than just being four teenage kids who happens to be Ninja Masters. And that's the big thing for me was what I liked about the characterizations in this is there are leanings in the directions that we know them from the comics. You know, mm -hmm. there's a leaning that Donatello's uh, good with machines and good and smart because he's working on the truck and he's doing that. There's leanings that Leo will lead, but they're still kids. They're still teenagers. Yeah. So like Leo's still getting super excited about pizza, just like mm -hmm. Mikey, just like Donnie. So, you know, you got a little bit of Raphael being a hothead, but not, it hasn't, he hasn't fully gone that direction yet. Um, and I liked that a lot. I really liked those characterizations because it made it made all of them feel like actual teenagers. Um, that was, I think, another thing with the newer films from fourteen and sixteen was they didn't feel they felt like they were in their early twenties in that instead of being teenagers. Instead, of, they're supposed to yeah. be like fifteen, sixteen at the most, and instead yeah. they, they felt much older than that. And that's this this didn't this felt like they were young. Their jokes are cheesy and cringy because most of us were cheesy and cringy at that age if not still and mm. um you know the forced references and kind of silliness like i loved all of that about that about those characters yeah. and, and that's why i made sure to say at the beginning of the show that you know i'm coming from it like audie and you were coming from the comics i'm coming literally from when i was four years old and watching the very first episodes of the cartoon mm-hmm on. I mean, it lasted until 1996, so I was 13 when it ended. So my oh, frame yeah. of reference for all three of these, all three of these movies, has always been the cartoon. Sure, so absolutely. The, so the see Mike, so Michelangelo. If we can just talk about the individual characters real quick. Sure. Michelangelo is basically the same. 
Mm-hmm. I understand deleted seats and that scenes and everything, but he's the surfer, cowbunga dude, and all that. For me, Raphael, yeah, he was starting to get into that hot-headed mode. The two, and then Splinter, oh, I was so glad we got to hear Splinter's origins. That made me happy. Mm-hmm. And because- those those were, I think, much more comic origin, because they, they, in the cartoon, he was a human that turned into a rat, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. In the cartoon, yeah. he was Hamato Yoshi. In the That's comics, right. he was the rat pet of Hamato Yoshi. That's right. And, and, um, I mean, just, and even then, like April O'Neil, I knew her as the newscaster wearing <laughs> jumpsuit, which, as I understand it, the actress didn't want to wear it. It was too tight or something like that. But they, yeah, she, they they dyed a yellow, a jumpsuit yellow, and she tried it, and it just didn't work. So they did yeah. they did do the the raincoat, which was a nice touch. It was, and, and it's, so it's like for me, coming from the cartoon to the movie, even thirty years later. I had to sit there as, okay, this is seven-year-old me watching this movie, having watched the cartoons, how much of it is different versus how much of it is the same, knowing that I didn't have anything to come from as far as the comics. Like, I I did take some notes, and I was sitting there at the beginning of the movie thinking, you know, could the foot, let alone a bunch of teenagers, really move fast enough that no one would hear them? (laughs) <laughs> and, and skateboards and TVs, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what I like too is, as I as I mentioned, how this was supposed to be set in a world that's like ours, and it's very similar to our world. And they tried to make it very grounded, while also having the ridiculousness of a four and a half foot tall uh, ninja turtle, right? So, and, and I think they found that balance point. They they were able to smoking grass. to give us something that that had both of those. Um, and I, I really very much like that because I wasn't that much older than you seeing this for the first time. And at the time, my only frame of reference was also the cartoon. That's all I knew. So like this movie didn't have the turtle van. It didn't have, uh, their mm-hmm. crazy gadgets. It didn't have bebop and rock steady or any of that stuff that shredder had. It was just the foot clan. Right. I still loved the hell out of it when I was a kid because it was, I was seeing the Ninja turtles on screen in real life I didn't care about any of that. Watching it now, I, I look back and I realize, like, yeah, they didn't have the turtle van, but they do take off in a van at one point. Mm-hmm. So we get kind like of a God. proto-turtle van. And like Gotti said, this is basically the equivalent of DC Comics year one or year zero. Yep. This is them starting out and everything else. And like I said, it's even sitting here watching it today during the Penguins game, I sat there and I was like, well, yeah, seven-year-old me would have loved this movie. Because mm-hmm. you're right, it, it struck that perfect balance of well, not perfect. There were, you know, spots, but the overallness of it was a good mix of the cartoon versus whatever. Because I haven't read the comics, whatever the comics were, and like that's why I said, even thirty something, even twenty nine years later, it still holds up. Yes, and there's a reason mm-hmm. why this one holds up, where the other two don't as much for me, is because. Mm-hmm. So this movie came out, and much like kind of Batman the year before it, um, people were worried that it was stuff like this was going to be too dark for kids. Now, obviously, kids ate it up because both of those movies were huge hits. But parents got very upset. With this movie, it was the use of weapons, and it was the dark tone, and it Mm, was the violence. Um, So if you notice in the second movie, the Turtles don't use their weapons. 
yeah, at all. I hated that. They're not allowed to. They weren't. They they basically the studio's like we're not going to have them using their weapons. Now the dumb thing there, for me when I watch it now as an adult, is the opening scene in the second movie. They're using all sorts of improvised weapons, and it's like so that's better. <laughs> like we can't yeah. have this guy using nunchucks, but we can show that oh you can grab two sausages and beat somebody with those. Also, on the weapons thing, in European countries, there was an edit of the movie because nunchucks were outlawed. And so they had to cut around a lot of that stuff, um, which was was interesting. Or was it the UK? You couldn't even call them ninjas. It was No, they were hero turtles. Hero turtles. Yeah. Um, And the German release was basically the cut English release, too. mm -hmm. That's why you get that in Germany as well. Yeah. Um, But they, they... because of that backlash, they changed the tone so much for the second and third movie. And I think that's where it loses a little bit is it. The second movie isn't bad, but it's not nearly as good as this one because it does get a little more lighthearted. I still enjoy it. I still like watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, the third movie I, I can't stand, but most of that is actually more. It's cheesy, but also they didn't have Henson. Uh, creature shop doing the turtles by that point, and you can see yeah. the quality difference. The eyes mm-hmm. are a little more dead. The puppeteering isn't as good. That's one of the things with this movie is, is the puppeteering perfect? I would say no, but it is really damn good, and it's expressive, and you believe that there's right. emotion coming out of these turtles. Yeah, definitely. And And so that helps it a ton. And they also like this movie was rated PG, but it had a lot of action. It had a lot of fighting, and uh, you know it had f- four or five uses of the word "damn" in it, which blew my mind at that age. Uh, For real, I was like, my mom let me watch this movie. Yeah, I <laughs> he was, said "damn" three times within the first like ten minutes of the movie. I was like, and Ooh. I think there was one case of a bitchin' too. Uh, might have been. Also, there Maybe. is um, there is Casey Jones with uh, just like wrecking people i mean mm-hmm. he's he's hitting people with hockey sticks with golf clubs casually murdering somebody with a garbage truck uh, <laughs> when i watch it I, I watch it now yeah the oops and he just like turns on the compressor on the garbage truck i was like that's Should pretty rough that my, yeah saying they they got away with that in a pg yeah. move mm-hmm. it was and a different don't time don't forget the Conseco bat. Yes. Oh, that was a great joke. <laughs> that was a joke that, I, I got as a kid because I knew who Jose Conseco was as a baseball fan. And by yep. 1990, he was he was not like the, the super popular guy anymore. And so that to me was always a funny joke. Raph meeting Casey is one of the best scenes in the entire movie. It really yes, is. It was. Especially really when was. they're fighting. He's like, now I'm going to teach you about cricket. And Raph's line after that, I still say to this day, cricket? Nobody understands cricket. You got to know what a crumpet is to understand cricket. What's great about that, too, is I guess uh, the writer was was living in, he either was from the UK or he was living in the UK when he was working on that. And that joke came about because of like somebody that was visiting and they started talking about cricket. And mm-hmm. the, somehow the joke came out of like, nobody understands cricket. So he worked that into the, the script and it's beautiful. Also, it, it is. I love that the turtles live in New York City. They have grown up in New York City, and Raphael's the only one who sounds like he's from there. Yeah, <laughs> he's the only one that sounds like he's from New York. Um, well, probably because he's the one going out and watching random movies like Critters and stuff. Yeah, so. that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Which very funny. I just watched Critters last Friday. 
this, <laughs> this past Friday, I watched Critters, and I, it wasn't even like there was no connection. We just decided to watch that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there, man, there's there's so many good things about this too, but and 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 it's not perfect. There's a few silly silly things. I mentioned Casey Jones, like just casually killing, murdering this dude. Um, there is a nightmare fuel shot, and if and that, when I tell you about this, if you watch it again, you will never unsee it. Yeah. Did you Ace? Did you notice in the scene, oh, no. in the scene where Raphael wakes up in the bathtub, and uh-huh. Leo goes over and they're hugging, and then you hear Donatello saying it's a Kodak moment, right? And it cuts over to him uh-huh. when he laughs, and he laughs really hearty, hearty laugh, and the the mouth on Donatello opens all the way up. You see, you can see the face of the guy in the suit. Oh, God, yeah, no, I saw that, and I had Mm -hmm. to pause for a couple of minutes. (laughs) You see the human mouth inside there, and it is, you will never unsee it, and it will haunt your dreams. Oh, oh, you will not. Yeah. Um, I noticed almost one more of those with Donatello in the sewers when when Danny tells him he had some pizza in there. Yep. Yeah, there's another. It almost happened again. Mm -hmm. Um, Not as bad. Oh, Oh, uh, there are four cameos of the four guys in the turtle suits in the movie too. Yeah. Um, and I love that. Uh, two of them are like, one is a blink and you'll miss it. The guy that played Leonardo, um, is just a thug standing behind Tatsu. Uh, the, uh, oh, leaf the one with his cigarette, just like, yeah, I'm tough. Exactly. Uh, leaf Tilden, um, has a cameo as the foot clan soldier who tells April to shut it. Yep. So you don't see him, right? He's in a mask. But uh, and he, which turtle was he? He was Donatello. Uh-huh. Uh, Michelin Sisto is the pizza delivery guy for Domino's. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was Michelangelo. And hey, can we talk about that for a few seconds? Yeah, can we talk about that. Just why is Domino's in the movie, but all the promotion <laughs> stuff was Pizza Hut? The way that Pizza Hut came up with more money. Yep, Domino's. Okay, that- Domino's was all about being in the movie, but Pizza Hut paid more to do all of the marketing afterwards. And there's Pizza also Hut some, <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of <laughs> one of those two. There was, um, I want to say it had to do with like play. Is it Playmates that does the, mm-hmm. the figures? So whoever had the licensing. Yeah. yeah. So what's um, Mattel? I'm not sure, but also I love, love uh, that scene with the pizza delivery guy. Um, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's great to get, you know, the actor that's in the suit gets a little moment in the sun. And it's funny too, like the one twenty two and an eighth. If you don't live <laughs> in a city, that doesn't make any sense to you. And when I was a kid at first, I didn't get what they were going for on that until I got older and I realized I figured out how addresses work and like, you could have 112 or 122, but then you'd have 122 and a half would be like the upstairs apartment. Um, yeah. And so, or the back. Yeah, or, or the basement or whatever. And then 122 and an eighth. And like now, when I hear that, I just I crack up every time. Um, yeah, that's. Plus, it's got the great line of, you know, wise man say, forgiveness is divine, but never pay full price for late pizza. Mm hmm. <laughs> Uh, kids, oh, that was a thing back in the day. Yes, Domino's, 30 minutes or less. That is something that uh, nobody knows about anymore because good luck getting a pizza delivered in under an hour these days, mm. which is fine, whatever. You know, it happens. But Domino's used or to have a thing. It happened in the app. Yeah, Domino's used to have a thing. Yeah. If your pizza was uh, took more than 30 minutes to get to you, they would take $3 off the bill. 
Um, mm-hmm. And they ended up stopping that because guys were getting in accidents and getting speeding tickets. Um, also, I love New York pizza delivery where they've got the little scooter and yeah, the pizza box in the back of it. Mm-hmm. I want I want that. Um, let's see. Oh, and then Josh Pace was uh, the actor who played Raphael. He actually was also the voice actor of Raphael. He was the only one to do both. He yep. is the um, passenger in the taxi that Raphael tumbles <laughs> over, um, which is the New York moment of this. So this is another one of those tropes. Every movie that was set in New York City used to always have to have that New York City moment, right? Ghostbusters has it, which is the moment where um, Rick Moranis uh, is running through the park and then he slams up against the window of the restaurant and everyone turns to look at him and then he, he slowly slides down and once he's out of view, all the patrons just go back to exactly what they were doing. That's that New York City <laughs> moment. And it cracks me up every time, but this had that, which is the cab driver. The cab driver, mm-hmm. and it's one of those, it's a line that I like to quote all the time too. It's one of those things that I say a lot. It's just like, and I didn't, I, at nine years old, I had no idea what LaGuardia was. Right. I didn't even know yeah. what he was saying. Um, I just, I, I like, I had no clue what that meant. Uh, but it still was funny to me. So, yeah, that, I love. I wish they had been able to do it with all of them. But just the fact that the actors for Raphael and Michelangelo were technically interacting with their turtle characters, yes, it was just beautiful. So good. Yeah, that, that was great. Um, and, and then as for, as for Leonardo's uh, actor David Foreman, he was also a stunt coordinator for Doctor Who. Ah, nice. Well, there's I your Doctor Who connection. Look at he that. He was the stunt coordinator for the Princess, for the Runaway Bride, Fear huh? Her, The Idiot's Lantern, The Girl in the Fireplace, and Tooth and Claw. Which makes sense given the ninjas fighting, the monks and everything yeah. in that episode. Yep. So if you watch it, you can, you can see that influence there. You can. You can, definitely. I did not know that he had done that, so that's pretty cool. Um, I would be remiss if I do not mention that uh, one of the best small role cameos in this entire movie is head thug played by Sam Rockwell. Yep. Sam Rockwell, who has gone on to be Oscar nominated, if not winning, did he, he won, didn't he? I don't remember now. I don't, I don't remember. remember. I, I don't know him from it. Do I mean, I? he, let me see. Well, he would have, he, it would have been for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, but I mean, he's been in, Countless things. Oh, Galaxy Quest, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, The Green Mile, he uh Moon. I mean, he is uh he is oh, great. He and and Justin Hammer, man too. Yep, Justin Hammer. And and here he is as the head thug. And I always remember him from this. In fact, when I saw the Green Mile in theaters in nineteen ninety nine. I remember saying, "It's the oh that dude was in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles" because I didn't I couldn't think of Sam Rockwell at the time. He wasn't quite to that level yet in my mind, um, but it was one of those things. And like, just kind of a cool early role for him. Plus, he gets the mm-hmm. uh, he gets to the, the deliver the line that gives um, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird their cameo, which is checking out the East Warehouse on Lairdman Island. Mm-hmm. And yes, so... he did win the uh, best supporting actor for three billboards. Okay, so there you go. So Oscar, Oscar-winning actor Sam Rockwell mm-hmm. playing head thug. Um, well, see, the actor, the actor in this movie for me would have been Corey Feldman. Yeah. Yeah. 
He was good in that. I, I mean, Corey Feldman alone, Goonies, mm-hmm. Block Boy, uh, a couple of Friday the 13th movies. Yep. So for me, as a young kid, it would have been Corey Feldman. I would have instantly recognized his voice. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a question yeah. for you. Uh, you probably have looked it up by now, but did you? Uh, <laughs> but uh, you, so you probably didn't recognize, but uh, the voice of Splinter and the puppeteer is um, Elmo. It's Kevin, no way. It's Kevin Clash. Kevin Clash. Did Splinter. Oh, so, I, you know what? That's how deep his voice was. I didn't notice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't sound like Elmo at all. Um, no. But, yep, that was uh, that was Kevin Clash, and he did all the puppeteering for it, too. And that was why the sewer set and part of April O'Neil's apartment set were built four feet off the ground was so that he would... The sewer set more, um, but they did it with the apartment as well so that they could have the puppeteers underneath everything. And then they'd be able mm-hmm. to watch monitors and see what was going on. But they also needed that space because Kevin Clash and the puppeteers for Splinter had to be down there because they didn't have like a, that wasn't a suit that somebody could wear. It was just a hand operated puppet. Right. That, that would make sense. That is really cool. Yeah. yeah. I always loved that. That was, uh, that was Kevin Clash doing that. Um, One more to throw out there. The voice of Michelangelo for you older folks was Robbie wrist. Mm-hmm. Also known as cousin Oliver on the Brady bunch. Oh <laughs> yep. Uh, also a li- uh, Oh, go ahead. I was saying, I even, I know cousin Oliver. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, uh, Elias Coteus as Casey Jones, uh, for the longest time, I could only think of him as Casey Jones. Um, but he's absolutely. another one who's, who's gone on to have a hell of a career and he's been in so many things and I love him and stuff. He has a very small role in Fallen with Denzel Washington, but he's so good. Yes. And he's, oh yeah, he's got range. Like, the thing with Casey Jones that I liked in this movie is the way April describes him in that scene is perfect. A nine-year-old trapped in a man's body. And that's part of why <laughs> he and the turtles end up getting along so well, because he is basically a teenager. And mm-hmm. he's got this like he's got this toxic masculinity about him before that was a, ever a thing um, to talk about. But he's just like the idea of him being afraid of something, he bristles at it, he gets all upset about it, and like he's gotta be this tough guy. Also, very, very small thing I noticed watching it this time around. I'm pretty sure, and this is, again, this is like Charles showing up a little disheveled because he spent the night dealing with his son or the the police chief being sweaty on the news because he's nervous. Casey Jones is wearing an athletic cup. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense Mm -hmm. that this dude would just be wearing that all the time. He's probably so used to it by now. It's just, But, like, that's a small detail that, again... You don't notice. It's not something you'd see. But if you, once you kind of see that it's there, it's sort of like, oh, that just informs a little more about that character. And I love little touches like that. And I loved like his moments where, um, you know, he's sitting there cutting vegetables with the katana because that's the only knife they have out there. Or uh, his his inability to talk to April uh, without. Mm-hmm you know, calling her toots or calling her a babe or whatever, because he's just a kid still. He's a, he's a man child. What he reminded me of, especially against the fight with Tatsu was Captain America. When he's in a fight, whether it was the after before or after the super serum. And he says, I can do this all day. Mm -hmm. Hmm. 
Casey Jones reminded me of that because he just kept getting up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and and that's the thing with him is he's not a superhero. He's just a tough guy. Uh, but yeah, he's he's a fun character because he's good hearted. Like all his stuff yeah. with April is, you know, it's very pig headed. It's very like it's not a good way to treat people at all. But he he's not doing it out of any sense of malice. He just doesn't know another way to act. We mm. do see him get better over time. By the end of the movie, he's he's in a better spot than he was when it started. He's still the same guy, but he's at least like his reaction to Splinter is great too. When he he walks in and here's a four foot tall rat and he's just like, all right, it's not the weirdest thing I've seen today. I was going to say like after four mutant <laughs> turtles, a rat, nah, that's one more. Yep. I really appreciate too, how good of a character they make Casey. They don't make him a jerk. Like when he goes to Splinter and gets him out, Splinter's like, who are you? And he's like, Casey Jones, I'm a friend. When he takes a few hits from Tatsu and then gets the upper hand on him and the kids and, uh, you know, the other kids around are like, let's get him. And Casey's like, you want to come at me? Come at me. And the kid's like, we're family. He's like, this, this is what you call family. Mm -hmm. Really? Okay. Well, I like that movie too was that that focus on family mm-hmm. exactly both the sides of it with shredder and the foot clan and everything else but also the the positive sides with splinter and the turtles and then casey and april and everything else that that was such a wonderful touch in this movie mm-hmm. well and splinter talking to danny about danny not understanding his dad actually caring for him and how that gets resolved like that was a nice little touch too Yes, well, and and that's a there's an emotional center to this movie, and again, it's why this movie holds up thirty plus years later. It's thirty two years old in uh, mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks, and it's because of that emotional kind of centering and the fact that it's focused on family. It's not the Turtles versus Shredder, which is more of what the second movie had because that's more of what the cartoon had to it. But this mm-hmm. has this this family thing where like these turtles and Splinter are a family, and then that family gets ripped apart by shredder and the foot clan simply because he views them as an enemy because they stopped him one time so suddenly he's this enemy against this other surrogate family which is shredder using these disaffected youth in new york for his own means but framing it as a family and kind of all the bad sides of the family he wants loyalty and everything because he wants these soldiers to be able to do his bidding but the that's a family out of out of fear uh, based respect, whereas Splinter is teaching this much more uh, a loving thing. You know, he's trying to work with these four turtles. He's raised them, and like there's that moment with him and Raphael, and after Raphael comes back from the movie, where he's he's like, look, you know anger is very difficult when you turn it inward it's difficult to deal with but you unlike your brothers try to deal with it yourself he doesn't tell him not to do that he just tells him if you're going to do that just don't forget about us we're here for you and like Mm -hmm. all of that and then to have splinter taken away and they each had to deal with it in their own way which is why again i want to see the stuff with mikey and how he dealt with it just because he's the one we don't get that arc from um but but to have, you know, and then and then for Casey, you mentioned the the scene with him where he's just like family. You call this family, like he's 
trying to put it into stark relief because he's seen what actual loving family can be like. And, and we don't have any of Casey's background other than he used to be a pro hockey player for less than a year. That's it. But he's a genuinely good guy and he's seen what these turtles are like and how they, they dealt with each other as a family. And uh, yeah. I just love the, the whole family tie of, of so much of this movie. So it's, this is, this is a really fun, fun movie that is honestly one of the better comic book adaptations to film that I've seen. Yes. Like if you're adapting a comic book to a movie based on that property, this is one of the better adaptations of that, I feel, because it captured the feeling of the comic, but it also got some of the feeling of the cartoon, which was insanely popular. And there's no way to get around that. And I think it, it's better because of that, melding these two things together, taking a story. The story beats also are almost point for point from a comic. Mm. Yeah, um, I will forever, forever say that this is one of the best comic book ad adaptations ever. Yeah. Super underrated for that kind of thing. Like it, you can go find the comics that most of the story beats come from. Like they, Steve Barron managed to take from a bunch of different comic book issues mm -hmm. and, and meld them together into this movie. Like the first issue, the very first issue of the Ninja Turtles, they practically killed Shredder. They just do. right there. They, they do. So, I don't think he was supposed to come back. I think Shredder, Shredder kind of got a little bit of like a, similar to what happened with the Joker where the Joker was introduced in Batman comics and either killed off or taken off right away. He wasn't meant to be to come back, but he was very popular. And so they kept kind mm -hmm. of going through and iterating yeah. it. Shredder was the same way. He wasn't initially yeah. intended to be a nemesis of any kind. He was just a dude. They got him, they killed him, they moved on, but he was popular. Right. So they brought him back. And then the cartoon focusing on him and then bringing in other characters that just took it to a whole nother level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And man, I just, I still, just the fight scenes in this movie. Oh yeah. I love are them. so good. And so like, there are some cheesy moments for sure. Mm -hmm. And they did a good job of not making it too violent. Like Leonardo never really cut somebody until the fight with shredder. Yes. And it counts. Raphael never stabs anybody with his size, but he comes close with Shredder. Like they really go at it with that last Shredder fight and it's amazing. But like the martial arts that is on screen that we see is just incredible in the suits that they're doing it in. Like uh -huh. that's the impressive. And part. some of those moves, some of those moves aren't just like, you know, yeah, there's some awesome kicks and punches here, but like when the, they've got two of them, like doing the somersault together and throws Roth into it. And he comes out of that and kicks three guys. Like that's some good stunts right there. So, so yeah. Steve, Steve Barron is a, is a music video director first. And he came into films. He ended up doing, I think Coneheads was one that he did. Um, he did do the, the 1998 um, TV miniseries Merlin. That was Steve Barron. Directing. Mm -hmm. But having golden harvest be the producers, who are known for martial arts films was a smart, smart move because they got great stunt performers mm -hmm. and they shot it like a Hong Kong action movie a lot more. There, yeah. there are quick cuts. There are close-ups of things, but there's also a very good amount of wide shots showing you action that's going on where you see everything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that that is one of the things that I think makes this work is 
you're you're going to be a little bit more limited in your choreography when you've got guys wearing uh, rubber suits. That's just the nature of things. But they did so much with what they had there, and they were able to. I mean, they got Ernie Reyes Jr. to do stunt work for Donatello. A lot of the acrobatic mm-hmm. stuff and the flipping and all, and they had stuff like that. They had flipping and rolling on the ground and use of the environment and all that kind of stuff. And the fights also vary. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not the same thing. And Audie, you and I talk about this a lot on Let's Watch Highlander, where we we like to see the varying storytelling of the sword fights, and they do that in this, where you've got a fight on a rooftop that's just Raph and fifty ninjas, and then that mm-hmm. that molds into something that is more enclosed inside the apartment, and then the thrift store, where it's a different type of fighting. We even see stuff like Leo hit the ground, and four guys just pile on him. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you see like the difference when they are then fighting in the sewers and getting out onto the street and how that all works. Mm-hmm. And then that, that fight at the end with Shredder, which, you know, there's parts of it are silly, like Leo running in and just diving at him full force. Yeah. Like that's silly. Or the really? way Shredder, the way Shredder goes out where he just, he gets so filled with rage that he just charges at Splinter. Um, mm-hmm. And it's silly. And I, I remember even thinking, at the time I saw it when I was a kid, like, wow, Shredder didn't really pose much of a threat to Splinter. Uh, but at the same time, like, they did some amazing looking stuff and it just, it mm-hmm. still holds up. And because everything was there, it was all in camera, it was all on screen. There aren't visual effects that they have to go back in and paint in afterwards. Right. And that makes a huge difference in when you're making a yeah. movie like this with this kind of action. So. I very, very much appreciated that. I think that if you were to try and capture a movie like this today, they would do more facial um, motion capture. Which is but what they did for the more recent ones. They I did. CGI than, than animatronics now. They would be. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. the way that you would do stuff now. Um, and I, I think it would look as well, they didn't. I mean, if you if you watch the 2014 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, it's not it's not a bad movie, but I don't like the design because it doesn't. Something about it just feels weird to me in comparison yeah. to this. And the other thing too that I liked was the cartoon was the same uh, the same drawing for all four turtles, just with different colors. Like there was very little yeah. to distinguish them. There was a little color difference, I think. These four, they sculpted them. They they all unique. They all look unique. Raphael mm-hmm. does not look like Michelangelo. Mikey's a little more rounded. Looks a little bit more like the cartoon, which kind of makes sense. He's the closest to the cartoon version of him. Um, Many pizzas. <laughs> a lot of pizzas, giving them that round face. But like Donatello's, uh, the head for Donatello like seemed like it opened wider than mm-hmm. the other ones. Um, I just love that. Like again, it's all those little touches that they did in this movie that are just great. Yeah, you had to say that and then trigger that vision again. <laughs> You'll know. Oh, it's gonna haunt you. It's gonna haunt you. Yeah, the the cartoon. The only difference was the the masks. They made the um, action figures different colored green, but they oh, didn't. That's right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Use that kind of money on the cartoon. I mean. Speaking of- Speaking of visions, real quick, actually, sorry, Travis. No, no. Of, I swear, this movie had more vision than Wanda did. <laughs> Seriously, you had Leonardo, you had uh, what's his name, Danny. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. if, if, 
every time they fall asleep, they, there was a vision. I loved the way they did the flashback stuff in this, by the way. I absolutely yeah. adored, like, when Splinter starts to tell the story, the backstory of the turtles, and it's a shot of him, and then they just slowly darken up the background till it's black behind him. And Heck then, yeah. like, and then as it's going, it's just a black background, and whatever is the focus shows up, and, like, you get Mikey who says something, and instead of it breaking back to a full full image, it's just an outline of him with the black background. So, like, you don't break the illusion of you're still in that. I, I just There was something mm-hmm. about that that was so cool to me. Um, so I love that. But you're right, Ace. It, they did have a lot. Like, Danny's, Danny's having his, uh, his dreams. Yeah. The, the, the scene, though, with the four turtles and Splinter coming out of the fire, that's such an emotional scene. It's yeah. the music is very subtle and it hits just right. And like, that's again, that's a, that emotional core that as a kid for me watching this, I was like, you know, I knew it was an important scene and it's just become more and like cemented more and more as I get older and I watch the movie again, like, Oh, yep. This is that, this is that moment. And, and again, I, I don't want to beat the dead horse, but the, the whole Michelangelo arc where he's the one crying at that like Ra- all four of them have their different reactions Raphael's mm-hmm. just excited that they're they're seeing Splinter and like you got the solemnness of Leo and Don and then Mikey's crying yeah well, not, only, not only that but with Michelangelo with the pizza yeah Michelangelo with the pizza scene yep Don standing there asking him can you imagine not having Splinter around and Mikey's just like the pizza guy's almost two minutes late mm-hmm. yeah he doesn't like, want to well, and yeah. even earlier, when Splinter's talking about one day I'll be gone, the other turtles are with Splinter. Mikey is the one who's with his head down and his eyes up looking at him like, what the crap are you talking about? Yeah. Dad, what's going on? And then he checks out. Yep. Yeah. Because he I, can't handle it. Yeah. And that's at again, that point. That, that's where I, th- I want to find the novelization because I'm wondering if they delve into that at all in there. I, I haven't read that. I remember reading the novelization of the second movie for some reason, though. Yeah, I don't remember specifically, but it's out there. Like, I, I meant to try and get it this week, and I just fell too late. But like, the local libraries got it and stuff. So, you know, and also like music in this. So, oh. I, I did read that originally Steve Barron had a different mus- um, musical person for it. It wasn't John Dupre who ended up doing the music. It was. Uh, I can't remember his name now, but he was like the manager for the Sex Pistols, which is why Danny's right. wearing Sid Vicious t-shirts throughout the movie uh, because he was sense. able to. Steve Barron was able to get that approved, uh, but then the studio wanted to go in a different direction, so they. That's why the music changed to John Dupre. Um, but yeah. what I liked about his music was it always fit the moment that was going on, and it does. It did. It does give you a little bit of that kind of cartoon TV feel to it, almost like a, um, it's almost like music in a Tex Avery cartoon, right? Where mm-hmm. it would like the music became kind of an, uh, another character at certain points, but then when there would be that emotional scene, he would step back and just give you something very subtle. And even like the theme mm-hmm. that opens the movie, it's not the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme from the cartoon, which as a kid yeah. I noticed and I was like, why am I not hearing the theme? But it's it's like it's it it's like it's a step away from that. It's like it it's a cousin. It was the logo. They did have that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I thought so because I, I saw that and, yeah. I, and I was like, okay, 
you got the logo where's the theme Mm -hmm. well this is one of those things the music is definitely a product of the 90s but like you said travis it fits this movie and like somehow they managed to be really good at sometimes it's goofy music Mm -hmm. for a goofy scene when michelangelo and donatello are rolling around on the floor getting hit with axes it's goofy music yeah but when one of those dudes hits an axe on the uh wire and stuff starts burning and it's like intense music clicks up and goes intense yeah um you know it's it's back and forth with the you know kind of cool music as they're fighting the foot clan but once it gets up to shredder and they really start going then it gets tense again like i i was impressed watching it this time around of noticing that the way the music transitioned in a very um good enough way like you didn't feel like it was just abruptly oh we're not goofy anymore oh we're intense now it's like it fit with what was going on yeah yeah no i definitely liked that uh, and then, of course, there's some licensed music that gets used, too. There's an MC Hammer song uh, when they yeah. first go to the, the Foot Clan uh, warehouse. Uh-huh. <laughs> but there were the the uh, the theme song that plays over the end credits, Turtle Power, which was done by mm-hmm. uh, a rap duo called Partners in Crime. Uh, it's basically uh-huh. one of, like, three songs they ever made. Was a huge hit. It was like a number one hit in the UK and it was a chart topper around in the US for a while um, on some of the charts. Like it was a crazy big hit, uh, which is mm-hmm. why they went to Vanilla Ice for the second movie. Yeah. By the way, which, yep. <laughs> and that was also a big, huge hit. Oh, that that's was huge. That's how yeah, popular the Turtles were. They could make, a, you could do a, a song that would chart from a movie called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like, yeah, it's kind of crazy think to think that, about. That song uh, kept, kept Vanilla Ice's career going a few more years. Oh, for sure. Like, but, I'm looking uh, at the positions of the weekly charts for that song. In Australia, it hit 15. That was the highest it hit. Uh, Europe in general, in the Euro chart top 100, it hit number two. It was number four in Ireland, number seven in New Zealand. Is this Go uh, Ninja Go United- or Turtle Power? This is Turtle Power. Okay. Yeah. We're not going to talk about Vanilla Dang. Ice in this movie. Leave Vanilla, <laughs> leave, leave Vanilla Ice out of this one. Uh, yeah. In the UK, singles, o- OCC, it was number one. The United States Billboard Hot 100, it was 13. And for hot rap songs through Billboard, it was number two in the United States. You know, uh, how's that for a group that never put out a full-length album? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they put out, I think, Partners in Crime as partners in crime did like three singles and that's it. But one of them was turtle power. And, and this 1990 was the year of Ninja turtle music. Cause like Phelan says in the chat in August of this of 90, it was when the coming out of their shells musical tour (laughs) happened. It was like, it's like, Hey, can you make some music? And they were like, sure. Like I know what I know who Oprah Winfrey is because I watched the Ninja Turtles on Oprah Winfrey (laughs) that one time. My mom was like, "Hey, the turtles are on. You can watch." It's like okay, and that's why when Travis and I were talking about this movie off off the show, I kept getting confused with two. Mm -hmm. Yep. And and I and I told Travis I could remember coming out of their shell. I had the the cassette tape. Mm -hmm. I could remember all the promotional stuff from Pizza Hut. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Pizza Hut definitely leveraged that. 
but I can't remember the actual. I can't remember ever seeing the actual movie. <laughs> it's kind of funny how that can happen, though. And honestly, I could almost see it where, like, you were just young enough at the time that your parents may not have, you know, no, or nobody would have taken you to the theater to see it. And then by the, yeah, and then by the time it hits home video, there's already the second movie out, which is more kid friendly. Um, yeah, and it's more geared towards the the cartoon and kind of all of that stuff. So this then this first movie can kind of just gets out of sight, out of mind. Um, well, that's why, that's why I can quote "Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go." <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I remember that, even though I hate Vanilla Ice, but and like, but, but I can't remember anything from this movie. It's crazy that the second movie was came out a year later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah. they were like, oh. Dang, this makes a lot of money. Let's make another one. And they threw that one together. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then even the third one is 93. Mm-hmm. So, so not too much long after that yeah, this second movie. March, March 20, the second one came out March 22nd, 1991. The next one came out in 1993. Yeah. So, f- so three movies in four years with that level mm-hmm. of production that has to go into it, which is why by the third one, you're getting cheaper. And yeah. you're going with something that doesn't take as much work to do to get it mm-hmm. pumped out a little. And what's th- hilarious is they all came out mar- like one right after another, almost to the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. So it, 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 it like one's March 20th. The first one's March 20th. The second one was the 22nd. The third one's the 19th. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they knew when people were going to go see these movies. Oh, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Uh, I have a couple clips I want to play because this movie has some good ones. Um, yeah, so let's see. There. Uh, do, do, do. Well, I I have this, and now I'm gonna I'm gonna keep this on a soundboard uh, just to have for whenever it is. Shut it. Because I liked that. I like the way he said that. Shut it. Um. Audie, you mentioned this one. Why don't I ever dream of Harrison Ford? Just love yeah. that. Judith Hogue was great in this, by the way. It's a bummer oh, that she yeah. didn't come back. From what I have heard, and I actually saw an interview with her from just like a year or so ago, and she has really fond memories of making this movie. Mm-hmm. She from now, this is all speculation and stuff that I've read, so I can't can't say this with like supreme authority, but I guess she was never really offered to be in the sequels, in part because she had said a few things about like, well, I didn't realize it was gonna be this violence and kind of stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so they didn't offer for her to come back, which I'm sure in retrospect, she's like, eh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But, you know, at the time, that's kind of how she felt. And it is a bummer and, because I thought she was really good as April. She was a very mm-hmm. strong character. She didn't take crap from anybody. I mean, she's, you know, the the dynamic of her and Charles <laughs> is great because he's her boss and she just doesn't listen to him at all. Right. No. And I'm, Well, I love... Uh, sorry, go ahead, Audie. Go ahead. I, I was just yeah. going to say, I love Judith Hogue now because despite whatever issues she had for the sequels and stuff, now she is one of those actors that is fully on board with Ninja Turtles stuff. Like, she's a lot of times the go to presenter for any kind of Ninja Turtles things happening online or, you know, uh-huh. Comic Cons and stuff. She was in a scene for the updated movies, the Michael Bay produced ones. Yep. That got cut, but she was. Megan Fox's April O'Neil's boss trying to give her a promotion or something. It was a really neat little cameo that she had for that movie. So, um, 
and she's she's one of those that's kind of a fun uh follow on uh social media and stuff she's got a youtube channel um she seems and, really you know yeah she seems really great and and yeah. i like that she's you know she she hasn't held any kind of animosity over not being in the sequels in some ways uh, I actually read, I think it was under the comments for the video of the interview with her, where somebody was like, yeah, well, the sequels didn't deserve her anyway, which <laughs> kind of Honestly, they did. Uh, I, I looked up the, the April O'Neils they got for the April O'Neil they got for the second and third. She didn't look like April O'Neil. Judith did, at least to me, from the coming from the cartoons and everything. She looked like the car, a real life version of the cartoon April O'Neil. She and certainly, what, yeah. And what helped, I think, with her role was that her her friend Robin Williams gave her the card yeah. to read, so mm-hmm, she understood mm-hmm. her role and she understood the turtle universe better than. And it's like, God bless you, Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the ways that man has touched people with this kind of stuff and yeah. opened their eyes to this kind of stuff. Like, for all the love we have for Robin Williams and his roles, like, I don't think we really know just how deep of a nerd he really was and how much he actually passed that on to other actors and stuff that he worked with and informed them of how this stuff isn't just for kids. This is fun stuff for everybody. Yep. Yeah. We didn't deserve Robin Williams. No, not at all. Um, Okay, I got Casey. Judith Hogue. Great. Oh, Judith Hogue. Great for April. Uh, I got Casey O'Neill. Oh, who is the babe? Like I love that moment because that is that is Casey Jones in a nutshell. He comes yeah. in, he's just like hardcore, ready to kick some butt, and then he then he gets distracted by seeing April. Uh huh. <laughs> Did you get so- Michael's Mikey's uh, reaction to that when he walks in? Because that's one of those lines I didn't understand as a kid, but still got enough of it where he's like Wayne Gretzky. On steroids? Oh, I yeah. Like, I didn't capture that, but that is definitely... That was one, again, because I was enough of a sports fan at the time to know who Wayne Gretzky was. Like, it made mm-hmm. sense. But, yeah, that was a good one. Uh, let's see. Um, here's a Sam Rockwell. Anything you want to do, do it. You know what I'm saying? Anything. It's one of the only lines he really has. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, what is this? What are... See this transplant work. Funkoid. All right, here goes. What are we on? Uh, G. Like, I love that. That's straight out of the That was amazing. Too. Oh, that was... my gosh. That whole back and forth. And when you realize what they're doing, and when Donnie asks, what are we on? And Casey Jones is like, oh, gee. And you, you're you able to go back and realize what they're doing is yep. calling each other names in alphabetical order. Yep. It's hilarious. <laughs> oh, it's so and good. That, and straight from the and comics. That, and that goes back right back to the family dynamic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Brothers, brothers are going to do. My brother and I do that all the time. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily alphabetical order, but we'll call each other names, and then one of us will have to go. Wait, what was the last one? Yep. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and um, it's just one of those things that's cool to see Casey fall into the family. Like yeah. he's like not necessarily a brother, but he's a cousin that you know gets along with everybody. Mm-hmm. Which was yeah, why absolutely. it was a a bummer that he wasn't in the sequel. He ended up coming back in the third movie, but it, uh, we don't talk about that. Um, no, Ooh, no uh, I don't want to watch. <laughs> this I just had to get this because this was just a funny noise. When when Donnie like wipes the sweat <laughs> off of his head and it squeaks like that, uh, cracked me up. Um, 
this was one, it was Leonardo. And I, I mentioned earlier how I liked how they, they were still teenagers. They were still kids. And like, this yeah. was the perfect encapsulation of that. This is when they come back at the beginning of the movie from their first encounter in Leo. They were many, but we kicked. We fought well. And that, that's perfect. Like that's so, mm -hmm. so good for that. Um, I say that every time I hear that song. Well, this is like meditating. I can't listen to that song. I cannot listen to tequila without yelling ninjutsu. No. The funny thing is, before this movie, I associated that song with Pee Wee Herman. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Because he did the dance. Like, mm -hmm. mm, mm, mm. Oh, yeah. But then this movie came out and it was obliterated. It took, it took over. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. Do, do, do. I said. Shut it. That's right. I did that one already. Um, 107. A new record. That's another one that like, I didn't get what was happening in that scene. The joke of it at the time. But for some mm -hmm. reason, his reaction and the way he said that always made me laugh. And then as I've gotten yeah. older, I figured out what the joke is. It's like it only took her a minute and seven seconds to get him to freak out. Um so, but yeah, I, that's one I use a lot too. Even if it's not an actual minute and seven seconds, I just 107, a new record. Mm -hmm. uh, I got a bunch of, let's see, Splinter. Okay. Splinter with um, this line, which is, again, that emotional core. All fathers care for their sons. And it's, it hits because it hits Danny and like, it's just, oh, it's rough. It's rough, but it's such a good line. It is still ridiculous to think that is Kevin Clash. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, Elmo, right? people. That's Elmo. I, I can't get it in my head now. <laughs> the two don't just m match up yet. Yeah. Um, and then there's there was this one earlier, and this was him and Raphael. And what I like about this was, again, it is uh, it is a, a fatherly thing. It's a family thing. Um, and this moment just did it for me. Goodness, wait till morning. You will listen now. And it's, and Raph, Raph is just like, yep, I'm listening. I'm mm -hmm. here. Like, he went, uh, he totally went that way. And of course, you can't capture anything with Splinter in this movie without getting Kawabunga. So now I've got Easy. that. <laughs> uh, I did get a couple of Mikey ones. Uh, let's see. Oh, this one is Mikey and Donnie. Fight? Fight. Kitchen? Kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. That was. Also, anytime I have a, a bag of these. Pork rind. So. <laughs> and again, that goes right back to that family dynamic. They yep. Mm -hmm. And Leonardo were, because like I said, Leonardo, at least again, for the cartoons, I don't know about the comics, so one of you guys can correct me on this, but Leo was always, he may not have started out as the lead, even no, he, in the cartoon. Yeah, he grew into he, it. He grew mm -hmm. into it. And mm -hmm. Raph was always hot headed jackass. Yeah. And the just butt heads all the time. And this was a perfect example of that. Yep. And Donnie and Mike just knew, okay, time to get out of the room, let them sort it out. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, of course. Wise man say, forgiveness is divine, but never pay full price for late pizza. If you were a kid in the <laughs> 90s, you said that. Yeah, I gotta get a new route. 
that was good. Uh, I also, this is another one I like to say a lot. Again, it just, it just cracks me up. Ninja kick the damn rabbit. <laughs> yeah. Watching the, that's a cartoon. Oh yep. my gosh. Uh, I did get a couple of Raphael's as well. Um, I love, I didn't get the whole, uh, well, no, uh, no, I didn't get the whole thing, but just the way he says this. Okay. Just okay. That, and now I've got that. <laughs> I've got that to, uh, to have anytime. Um, a Jose why? Seiko bat. Tell me <laughs> you didn't pay money for this. Again, there's that New no. York accent. <laughs> Let me go back. <laughs> that other one. Why? Oh, I don't know. I wanted to redecorate, you know, a couple throw pillows, a TV news reporter. What do you think? Oh, you mean this one? Oh, I don't know. Because I wanted to redecorate. You know, a couple throw pillows, a TV news reporter. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I've exactly seen this movie a few times. A couple. A couple times. Just a few. Uh, I got this yeah. mostly because, again, uh, when watch the movie again, you'll notice it's Michelangelo in the scene, but it's Raphael's voice saying, So, uh, what do we got? Oh. I mean, come on. How do you guys expect to beat me? <laughs> it's so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, go ahead. Good answer. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just more guys. Where did just he earlier, come up with this stuff? Oh, yeah. Coming out of critters. <laughs> Coming out of critters. As he's a turtle dressed in a trench coat and a hat. Yep. Um... Cricket? Nobody understands cricket. There's that. I did also get... Cricket? Nobody understands cricket. You gotta know what a crumpet is to understand cricket. I'll teach you. Six runs. I had no idea what that meant when I was a kid. I'm like, six runs? What? What is is he talking about? Um, And I'm gonna play... Again, the music there for that one. Oh, yeah. So playful. So, like, fit the tone of that fight. Yep. Yeah, that's... Uh, and I'm going to play these four in quick succession. So you'll understand why as I start playing them. Which is... Damn! 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 <laughs> the potty mouth on that turtle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so 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 good. So many, uh, so many great moments in this movie. Um, yeah, I mean, this how this is a part get, of. Oh, go ahead. But but how didn't you get the most important one? The God, I love being a turtle. Yes. I mean, because it's in every trailer. It doesn't matter. <laughs> that is an iconic quote. And it then is. the end, and then the end was Splinter. You forgot the most important part of that one. Yeah, they're all, yeah. When they're all standing laughing, I made a funny. So I, no, no, no. I was, I, I actually did clip that. The problem is that, um, I, the mix is such that you can barely hear what he's saying because the music is over top of it. There was a few yeah, moments that, that I tried to clip stuff where the music overplayed, and I couldn't get it. That makes so, sense. so instead, I just got. Kawabunga. Now I've got that oh, forever. That, that's still good too. Yep. Yeah. And then the second movie they make a callback to that and it's just terrible. It's like, I made another funny. It's like Yeah. 
Okay. I laughed at I laughed at that and I didn't know why. (laughs) (laughs) I literally did not like it was you made another I'm I'm sitting there at the same time thinking, when did you make the funny in the first place? (laughs) Well now you know. Now you now it it only took thirty years, but now you have the context. Yeah. Yeah. But but now and 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 again, like I said, I also have this now. So uh, so all y'all in the chat, you gotta you gotta behave or you get a shut it. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's not gonna stop me. <laughs> no, probably not. Um, <laughs> this is a movie though. It's right now. It's streaming on Netflix. Uh, in fact, the first two. I don't know if three is or not. I didn't look because the again, third one's there and the CG from '07. Okay, which is set in the same universe. It is kind of mm-hmm. the same world, the the 07 one, which is pretty good. Um, it's a good one. It's not great, but it's it's really good. Yeah, TMNT. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's fine. But that definitely, I mean, it's on Netflix. If you have Netflix, watch this movie. It's worth it. Mm-hmm. It's an hour and a half long. It's paced really yeah. well. It's fun. Totally worth seeing. Ace, I'm really glad we got to show it to you, and you finally get oh, to yeah. see it. I'm so glad I got to see it. And that's how I watched it was Netflix. I watched it at 1.30 this afternoon, and it went till about 3. Yep. So there you go. And, mm-hmm. and like I said, 32 years later, it still holds up. I, I would have absolutely loved this movie as a kid. And I definitely would have bought it on VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, mini disc, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it was on given the length of time and everything. So, but there was just so much in this movie that just sat there. Like I said, it, it, it like you guys said, it's a good movie, but mm-hmm. you still sit there and think about some of the things like, okay, there was the case where Raph brought April O'Neil back to their lair, and you see a shot of a Foot Clan soldier seeing where they live. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you sit there and you want now as a kid you wouldn't think you would say, uh oh, they're in trouble. But as an adult, you're sitting there, why didn't the Foot Clan come after them? Well, they did, yeah, but, but they did. it took uh, they that guy had to go back, and then they came back and got Splinter. It just had, mm-hmm. so happened to be that they the other turtle the turtles had left. They took April home. And then the other thing, watching it now, it's speaking of Splinter and them taking him, it didn't feel like they merely kidnapped him. It felt like when the turtles came to the April O'Neil's apartment, and she's like, "What's the matter, Splinter? He's." It felt like Splinter died yeah well i mean they didn't well, they're not yeah until the and rooftop I, battle with shredder like that's why leonardo's reaction especially is the way it is like they had no, they were I, not sure whether or not he was alive actually until they did the until leonardo connected with him mm-hmm. right and, and I, I get that i get that now obviously watching the movie and everything but sure. but at that particular moment i sat there and in my notes i have in parentheses i'm like but they make it look like he died? Question mark. Mm-hmm. And I added later. Okay, we find out later that he didn't. So, <laughs> so I want to end uh, my thoughts on this movie with this, which is, I like the fact that this movie is a little darker and it does push the envelope of what you can put into to a kids movie because I feel like like the Dark Crystal. Um, and movies like that. I feel uh, The Secret of Nim is another one that I always think of where that movie scared the crap out of me as a kid. Um, I like, not every movie has to do this, and there's certainly not every kid is going to be able to watch a movie like this and and 
come away from it okay. But I do think that a lot more more kids than you would think could watch something like this at a young age and not have it uh, cause problems for them, but it does challenge them a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's a bad thing because um, this movie does get right up to the line of being too much without quite stepping over that because the stuff that does go beyond it, Casey Jones, um, casual murder, you know, type thing, it's done in a way that is going to go over the head of kids. They're not going to catch what he's doing there and what's happening there necessarily. So I think that it works in that way, which, and, and because Steve Barron and the writers came at this as we're going to make a good film. And in order to do that, we're going to take from these comics and not just adapt the cartoon then it made for something that is much longer lasting. And I think that, that was because they started from this idea of we want to make a good film first. And then yes. we will pepper and layer on uh, all the other stuff that makes it as popular as it is. I think that's what makes it work. So Yeah, absolutely agreed. Mm-hmm. And, and I personally, oh, sorry, didn't realize you weren't done. Go ahead, Jack. No, no, no. All I was going to say was, I when I watch this movie now, there is some nostalgia factor to it for me. So I kind of get that, which is why it's great to have you know to to hear your thoughts on it, seeing it for the first time so long after it had come out, and from a very different mindset of you are not a six year old kid watching right. this movie for the first time. So the fact that you enjoy it, um, is just that much more of a testament to what type of filmmaking they were doing when they were making this. Absolutely. And then like I keep saying, as a six-year-old, I would have loved it too. And when I watched it, see, I watched it in three stages. When you first, when, when it got a little closer to the third, to the today, I watched it Wednesday or Thursday and I watched it and sat down as the six turning seven-year-old mm-hmm. and thought, okay, how would I like this scene back then? Would I understand this? Yeah. How did I deal with, you know, then I sat down and I just flat out, watched it as I am now basically in the mindset of how I am now I just watched it as a movie as a fan and then I watched it today to definitely take notes and all three times I just kept thinking you know I gotta go back and watch this again and again and again and then mm-hmm. I kept thinking okay I gotta, I gotta ask Audie how do I get into the comics and then I was like okay I gotta find I got to find the other movies and now I'm kind of unsure because they were made by Michael Bay, but well, they were produced by him. He didn't, he didn't direct them. He didn't write them. So you're, you're okay there. But so, yeah, no, I mean, and I know I've watched the other, the, the sequels and yeah, they are definitely more kid friendly. What's interesting to note is that the TV, the cartoon, I keep saying TV show and I mean cartoon, I mean, it's essentially the same thing, but the cartoon started adapting more of the movie into itself because the the begin for better or for worse but like they changed the the sky to be more dark more mm-hmm. great like batman the animated series the the opening of the cartoon incorporated scenes from this particular movie yeah over into time the, into the opening and everything and they started getting the storylines that were darker and grittier like and I think that's about the time I stopped watching the cartoon, to be quite frank, because I like I like the like that's why I said I, I I identify with Donatello. 
I identify with, with Leonardo because I am the older sibling. Mm-hmm. But honestly, Mikey's my favorite because he's that lovable, sweet, innocent kid, even if he's a teenager or an adult or whatever. And he's easier to get into from an audience perspective. As for making the movie, what I would suggest to other comic book adaptations, even Marvel and all them, sit and watch this movie. Because like you said, Stephen Barron and everyone sat down and said, let's make a movie first and pull in stuff from the comics. Mm -hmm. Not let's pull stuff from the comics, then make a movie. Which is how I feel most comic adaptations are. So I would definitely recommend, whether I'm six years old or 38 like I am now, for movie producers, even students, especially students, sit down, watch this movie, and see how it's done and done right. Definitely see how how an adaptation Mm. should work. Yes. Right. Yeah, for me, it's just like I'm biased because I watched the cartoon Mm -hmm. and I got so into Turtles. And I saw this movie when it opened and fell in love with it. We got the VHS tape, wore it out. I was telling Travis earlier this week, I found my DVD that I got of it, that it's old enough that it had the widescreen and standard screen version on either side. Yeah, I remember you saying that. <laughs> so it's like, had it a while. Like, I was all about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We had like 40 of the action figures. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I was all about the um, musical group. Like, I wore that cassette tape out like crazy. Um, I've watched every single movie that's come out. This is one of those movies where it's like no other movie can ruin, quote unquote, ruin my childhood because they did this one so dang good. Yeah. At adapting the material, adapting the characters, and making it one that holds up. Mm-hmm. Even for, you know, some of the dated stuff, like, you know, Danny gets a Walkman out. It's like, okay, that's a Walkman. But, like, in 1990, a Walkman was 200 bucks, So that was no small thing. Right. But yeah. no other movie has captured the feeling of the Turtles as they were, both in the comics, both in the cartoon, and bringing them together in such a good way. Mm-hmm. You know, they steered the sequels more into the kid versions. Because that's where they wanted to take them to make the most money off of this property, which is where it was going anyways. The Michael Bay produced ones tried to bring it back. They did okay with the first one. I would say, Ace, watch the second one. If you're a fan of the cartoon, the second one brings so many elements of the cartoon stuff. Yes. Now, are you saying the second one of the Michael Bay or the second one of this this series? The second Michael Bay produced one. It's called TM, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows. I actually covered yeah. it for the show a while back with... Um, David and, um, and yeah, I remember uh, that. Phil. No, um, I can't even his name. I can't remember the names, but I do remember being in the chat room for that one. From uh, hit me one more time. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, Nick. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. David, Nick. And, yeah. David and Nick. We did. Uh, we did that one. That that does definitely capture the uh, cartoon feel, the cartoon energy. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. A lot more. They're both fine. They're not bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not great, but they're not bad. But I, I do feel like they definitely went that route uh, of trying to capture that that cartoon energy. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the the 2007 CG movie is worth watching, I would say. Sure. It's, it's a fun little romp of a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's CGI cartoon, they kind of keep it more kid-friendly. But it's still a good movie overall. Um, the thing I think I liked about this movie more than anything is they kept it simple. It was yes. just yeah. about the turtles. It's just about the Foot Clan. That's it. Now, the comics, they go way out there. Like, oh, yeah. everything that happened in the cartoon, like, they went there in the comics mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Yep. So, Dimension X, Neutrinos, all that yeah. kind of stuff. The rock. And even the comics, the comics right now, it's pretty incredible what they're doing with them. Like, they've brought in a fifth turtle who's a female and Venus. made her work. I'm sorry, what? Venus. Yeah. Yeah. They've made her work like, um, it's funny, somebody I actually went to SCAD with is one of the main writers, illustrators, uh, Sophie Campbell. Um, and just her work on there has been phenomenal. Like the influence she's brought to the to the turtles and stuff. And, you know, I went to art school with her. I remember her drawing turtles and stuff like we all did, you know, in our sketchbooks and stuff like that. And she's got such a unique style. It's really cool to see what they're doing now with the turtles. And they've just exploded that universe in a whole nother dimension. And it's really cool stuff they're doing. Yeah, it's it's great. And and to think that this was, I mean, a lot of that popularity hinged on this movie in in some ways because mm-hmm. the cartoon was extremely popular. Yeah. But to bring it to a feature-length film like this brought it to a whole different level and and helped to keep it going. Um yeah. so it's definitely it's it's worth a watch for sure. Um and Ace, I'm just glad that, you know, we got to show you that and you enjoyed it so much and uh, and then yeah. you came on to talk with us about it. That was great. This has been super well, fun. What helped too was the fact that I'm a furry, obviously. <laughs> sure, sure. So, I mean, you got, you got a movie with furries with animatronics and everything else. And yeah, it, it was just a great movie. What I find funny is reading and researching and everything. The cartoons started getting darker. These movies started getting more kid-friendly. Yep, they kind of met, met in the middle yeah. in, in some ways. Very, very cool. Well, Ace, thank you so much for being on uh, this week. This has been a great conversation. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you. And like I said, thank you for letting me. I'm sorry if I stepped on any toes. I definitely no. didn't mean to. You are fine. <laughs> you are fine. And Audie, uh, it's great to have you on here talking about something other than uh, Immortals for, for once. Although we're going to be doing that again in a couple of days. Um, yeah, we are. Because we, uh, Audie and I do a show called Let's Watch Highlander that we record on Tuesdays. comes out as a podcast on Thursdays. You can get it at anchor.fm slash Let's Watch Highlander. Uh, this show comes out Wednesdays as a podcast. If you do, however, want to watch us record it live, uh, check out the live stream and be in the chat, which is normally where you can find Ace Tigress. <laughs> uh, there's also... Tell him, Trav- tell him now. Hey, Travis. Yeah. You got you to gotta watch West Wing, man. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, we also got uh, Phelan in the chat. Sirnex is in there. Uh, I saw Danny Aura earlier. Um, you can do that at twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. And you can uh, hang out uh, on Sunday nights around 8 p.m. Eastern. I record this show. Um, and we also do have a live stream of Let's Watch Highlander Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern. So you can check that out. Um, next week, what do I have? Next week, I think I am watching Identity, finally. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, a friend of mine, David, who has never seen it before. I believe that is what is next week. It's either that or... Um, no, I take that back. We're going in a very different direction for next week's movie. Uh, the uh, 
the hosts of Gutting the Sacred Cow podcast are going to come on, and we are talking about <clears throat> Blue Velvet from director Ooh. David Lynch. Uh, the, quote, my mom's, quote, favorite movie. Uh, my mom hates this movie, <laughs> and uh, and it's a, it's a running joke in our house. She still to this day holds a grudge against a friend of hers for showing her that movie years and years and years ago. So... Uh, when I, I mentioned, I saw them, I saw my parents earlier this week and I mentioned to her, I'm, I'm covering blue velvet mom. And she was like, you're going to watch that movie. <laughs> so That is what's coming up next week. Uh, identity is the week after that, uh, identity directed uh, okay. by James Mangold. So that's going to be fun. Um, but yeah, blue velvet. I, I've, uh, I haven't seen it, so I don't, I don't know what I'm in for. Uh, I know it's Dennis Hopper and it's weird. It's David Lynch. So it's going to be weird. Yeah. So you have fun with that one. <laughs> that's what's coming up next week. Um, and uh, and yeah, uh, I also like to if you want to just check out. Um, I am on Twitter at TV's Travis, and uh, you can see when I go live for these shows. Or I do some game streaming. Uh, I paint uh, tabletop miniatures quite a bit. I've been working on those. Um, Audie, you're on Twitter uh, where you put your artwork that you do uh, in general and also for Let's Watch Highlander. What what is your Twitter handle again? Uh, you can find me at oddly normal one with the one spelled out. All right. And Ace, you're on Twitter too, right? Yeah, but I'm not going to pimp that. Instead, if you don't mind right now, I'm going to, um, I know you guys are all trans allies and everything. And sure. this is an important topic to me because I am transgender. I know I don't look it. I know I don't sound it, but you know, that doesn't really matter. Um, kids in Texas are in trouble guys. The, the government in the state of Texas is going after families just for getting their kids the gender-affirming care that they need. So I, I'm going to implore your audience, Travis, to go to transtexas.org and donate, help, do whatever you can for the Transgender Education Network of Texas. Sure. Please. All right. Yep. Transtexas.org. Check that out. Transtexas.org. Excellent. Absolutely. Well, once again, Audi and Ace, thank you both for being on. This was a ton of fun, and I loved talking about this movie. Um, this is a one that's near and dear to my heart uh, from my childhood, so this was kind of great. Uh, so, yeah, next week is uh, Blue Velvet. Uh, we're going to have some fun with that one. Until then, uh, just remember to enjoy your movies, and let's be excellent to each other, all right? This has been Wait You Haven't Seen. like sort of a big title in a trench coat. You're going to LaGuardia, right? Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>